So one of the verses from this week's lectionary is from Philippians 4. So we'll just start by reading that, um, and then we'll talk about some other things. So Philippians 4, 4 through 7 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God, we are here on this third week of Advent to talk about joy. And uh, we talk about joy a lot in the dancing, but we talk about, uh, I think, the, the mourner's bench, right? That's what, uh, we talk about being there with each other too. And we're not a group of people that can ignore uh, our own grief or sadness, uh, much less the sorrows of the world. So we pray that you help us find that intersection um, today. Amen. Um, okay, so Advent is... Uh, it, it comes from a Latin word that means coming, right? So we are kind of in that longing, um, sort of walking with all the like years of Jewish people who are waiting for Christ to come. So Advent is just sort of our time to like practice that. So Advent is about the longing, the waiting, um, and Christmas is sort of supposed to be the, the end, right? The joy that comes after we wait. And I was thinking about how that's sort of a pattern that we practice a lot, right? So like we wait for a spot at a restaurant or for our food to come, and then at the end we get to eat food. We wait for the seasons to change, from it to go from hot to cool. I don't know how many of us wait for the hot to come, but, you know, wait for the seasons to change. Um, we wait for our next phase of life, right? We get stuck in that. We're like, okay, if I'm just at this next place, um, you know, like kind of each thing, you're like, oh, when I get to college, then it's going to rule. And then you're in college, you're like, when I finish school, then the whole world would be open to me, right? It's like kind of each stage, like a different job or owning a house or getting married or um, when we're pregnant, we're waiting for a baby to come. You're like, okay, when the baby's finally here, then I'll be more comfortable. Or if the baby finally smiles, then I can just enjoy this lump, right? There's all the waiting. Um, we wait for healing. We wait for cures. We wait for racial reconciliation. We wait for the table to get longer, for churches to do what we think they should, right? And we expect joy to come at the end of those. Um, and then during Advent, we simply wait for Christmas morning. You know, this weekend our kids were um, spent Saturday part of the day with my in-laws, and so we got a bunch of presents wrapped, and they've come home. Now there are some presents under the tree for them, not for grandparents like it was, and they're excited, right? They're waiting, the anticipation um, and the anticipation adds to Christmas morning for them. So during Advent, we practice living in the liminal space, which is just like that in-between space where the kingdom of God or, or Christ has come and is also coming. So that's sort of um, Advent, right? That's the beginning of Advent. And so as I was thinking to prepare, I was thinking a lot about joy. Okay, so what do I want to share? How can I be authentic in my sharing, um, my own experiences and um, was really overthinking it like a ton because it's hard. It's hard because there are sad things, right? I mean, I read this morning about the tornadoes in Kentucky and there's um, school shootings and, and every day, right, there's these huge hard things. And so how can we talk about joy authentically and not just, you know, say rejoice in the Lord always and send everyone home? And so, so I'm holding this... Uh, 
thinking about joy, in my own personal kind of Advent reading, I've been uh, thinking a ton about Mary, like Jesus' mother. And I grew up in a tradition that didn't really give a lot of emphasis to talk about Mary. Almost feel, I almost feel like it was like taboo, right? Because Baptists are like, ah, we're not going to do what other people do and like, Mary wasn't God, you know, all these things. And so it's almost like you don't get to hear about her at all. Like, maybe she appears in the pageant for like 30 seconds, and then that's kind of it. And so I wanted to take that step. This is like, there aren't a lot of women who get very strong voices, especially in the New Testament, uh, really in the whole Bible. So I'm like, why wouldn't I want to spend time thinking about her, um, learning from her? And so Um, I've been reading like kind of this heavy theology book. I also read this really beautiful book of poems that opened my imagination to a whole character of the Bible that really hadn't been in my my mind that way before. And um, began to realize that Mary was not just like meek and mild or however the songs and the paintings portray her, but that she had this really powerful prophetic voice. And she has this huge like monologue, right? Like she has, it's called the Magnificat, or her song of praise, and she is rejoicing. And so it kind of hit me the connection that we have um, on this Sunday to talk about Mary. And I'm sure if I was teaching on another Sunday, I would have found another way to connect, because I'm really <laughs> uh, thinking about her a lot. So, um, but I think that, uh, yeah. And so, so what we're going to do with our time, even though I've already been talking a while, is I read a book recently where the front half, she talked about how it was a time to grow inward, and then the second half of the book, she says, now we're going to use our learning, the the inward growth, to figure out what that looks like for flowing outward. So we're going to kind of like balance that today, and we're going to use the Magnificat in that way. So that was like the longest introduction of a sermon that I've done. But we're going to read from Luke. So if y'all want to go there, I don't think, yeah, the screens are kind of bonkers. But we're going to read from Luke chapter 1. I'll tell you the beginning, then we'll start at verse 28. So um, Mary has a cousin named Elizabeth who um, is married to a a priest, I think, or, or a person who serves in that way named Zechariah. And an angel comes to Zechariah and says to him, like, you and your wife, even though you're old and think that, that your time is done, you are going to um, have a baby. And this baby will be special. He's going to prepare the way um, for the one who uh, will bring redemption, right? He's preparing the way for Jesus. And then an angel comes to Mary, and this is what the angel says. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, will be holy. The child to be born will be holy, and he will be called Son of God. And now your relative in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her, who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am. 
the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Okay, so Mary is, I'll like set up a little bit about what I've been learning about what we could um, know kind of about Mary, right? We don't know a ton because the Bible doesn't say a ton, Um, but she was young. Um, Minimum age at that time in that area to be married was like around 12. Um, They're betrothed for a year, so maybe she was around 13 or 14. Most girls were married. Now, that sounds like really wild, but right, this is a time where people are not living that long. So it's not like, well, we, we don't have to go on that. So her, her hometown, so Nazareth is a Jewish community. It's really poor, no political standing. Uh, theologian Elizabeth Johnson says this, she was young, female, a member of a people subjected to economic exploitation by powerful ruling groups, afflicted by outbreaks of violence. She belongs to the semantic domain of the poor in Luke's gospel, a group given a negative valuation by worldly powers. So not like awesome, right? Like her life is hard. There is hard work and um, illness and uh, not a lot of dignity, right? Because she's this poor woman. So in, in spite of that, she pretty quickly says yes to partnering with God in this, this huge work of redemption, right? Like she's going to carry the baby that's ushering that's ushering Christ into the world. And so I got to thinking about that and like what kind of person would God choose to carry, not just like carry the baby to birth, but like hug the baby and put Jesus to bed at night and teach him to be kind and patient and to grow into a man that, that is Jesus, right? Like who would Jesus choose that would probably give him most of his earthly knowledge of faith and prayer and um, being Jewish, right? All of those important things that, like, it had to be, I mean, and the Bible talks about it some too, but, right, like, this, this woman, this girl, was likely someone who was in the Spirit, who communed with God, who was um, in a place where it was easy to say yes quickly because she was used to... Um, wanting to follow God and do, and do those things um, of God. And so, um, yeah, and so, so all of that, like pregnancy was hard, right? Scary, the mortality rate is high. We talked about being from a culture that knew about hardship and sorrow. So a poor peasant woman, right? Struggling to feed. Um, sure, she had like siblings and family, right? Lived in this family group, like every day was hard. And yet she says yes. And so, so she says yes to the angel, to God, and then she, I love this, it says, in those days Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country. So she quickly is like, I need to see Elizabeth. This angel just said that she's doing kind of what I'm doing. And so she goes on this long trip. I read that, like, of course, you know, as like a young woman, she would not have gone alone. She was likely escorted by Joseph or maybe a family member or someone you know, from her new family and I kept picturing the, who knows, but my imagination keeps picturing whatever men are escorting her being like, oh, fine, right? I roll like, you got to be kidding me. It's going to take a week. I'm going to walk for a week for you to see this person, this cousin who's older than you, who she may not know well, but she knew she had to see her. And I, I keep picturing this moment when I was pregnant with, 
Whitman, and I had a friend who knew I was pregnant only because she sort of found out, right? Because as one does. And, um, but she also then got pregnant about a month after me, and she, you know, we meet for a walk, because I know she wants, I don't, I don't know that she's pregnant, but we meet for a walk, we're going to Town Lake, and we are walking for maybe 30 seconds, and she just screams like, and that's not what she screamed. I'm struggling. Anyway, but she screams out and is like, I'm pregnant too. I'm going to have a baby. And it was this shared experience, right? Because we're looking for the shared experience. And so I love thinking of these two women who, who run to each other and are like, guess what? Me too. This is, this is what's going on in my life too. And it's so beautiful. And so this is what uh, Elizabeth says to Mary when she, she gets there. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord." And I think you like can't help but hear the joy in these verses, right? This Elizabeth is like so excited. I imagine you know her arms out and, and ready to receive um, both Mary and uh, and Jesus. And um, our our theologian of the day, uh, Elizabeth Johnson, says this. She says these women are the speakers who powerfully convey the resounding good news. Women themselves embody the mercy of God, which they prophetically proclaim, and they do so in the context of meeting and affirming one another. They were singled out as mothers of redemption. So beautiful. Um, so this is what Mary says in, in, in response. She said, or, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their homes and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. So Mary likely stayed for the birth of John, and um, then she went home when things got real, real crazy there. But, um, so there's kind of two stanzas in this, right? There's the beginning part where Mary is saying, how much love she has for God and how much God loves her. And then in the second kind of half of this um, uh, poem, it's talking about God's justice, right? And the tearing apart of social structures, how like this baby that she's carrying is going to change everything. And so it's sort of split in something that we've, I'm sure said and that you've you know, heard forever. It's like the love of God and then love of neighbor, right? She brings the whole world. Uh, she joyfully proclaims God's gracious, effective compassion at the advent of the messianic age. So it's like thinking of this thing, it's like this switch, this, this change is beginning to happen. And she refers to herself as lowly, which I think is, um, is good. It's good to, to think through. Um, I read that 
it's not her using a metaphor for like her spiritual humility, but it's actually like her social position. That the word in Greek describes misery, pain, persecution, and oppression. So she is someone who knows uh, hard things, right? Who knows um, no sorrow. And so then she, she brings the rest of the world, she brings the poor and the oppressed people in, in those second stanzas. And Bonhoeffer says, this is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary who we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. So she is declaring that God is for the oppressed, for the marginalized, for the lowly. She's carrying the Christ, um, that God is not coming into the world just for the powerful. Um, I actually read that in the 1980s that the Guatemalan government banned recitation of the Magnificat because it was so subversive and they were so worried that like repeating it all the time would, would do something they didn't want to happen, right? There's like power in these words. And, and so then I think we can hear all this and we're like, okay, cool. What does that mean for me? Okay, so this is when we can begin to make that shift, right? So we can learn and be inspired by Mary, and then we can shift to say, like, how, what does this look like for, like, to flow outward from us? Um, Johnson says, what does it mean to rejoice in God your Savior? This is not a superficial joy, but it is written against the whole canvas of the world's pain. It's messianic joy, it's Pascal joy, aware of the struggle until death, yet hopeful that the great Nevertheless, of God leads to life. In the midst of suffering and turmoil, the sense of divine presence is compassionate care and offers strength, leading one to be glad that God is great. Uh, in her book, she has nevertheless in quotations, and so I sort of followed the rabbit trail to see where that came from and did some Googling too, and it seems there's a lot of places people... Um, kind of tie that to, but one story I was kind of captured by is there was a bishop in South Africa during apartheid. His name was Peter Story, and he famously had said that even with all that was going on in the struggle, that nevertheless, he felt God and his people felt God in relationships, in their hearts, um, in their desire to continue to move, um, move things forward. And I thought that was uh, really beautiful. So like I said, this is kind of like where our shift happens. Um, how do we, or what does joy look like for us, right? Because we can say, well, Mary was joyful because she was carrying the Christ child, and that is this overflow that she offered. But uh, Henry Nouwen says, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose and keep choosing it every day. A choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety, that nothing, not even death, can take God away from us. Mary chose joy when pregnancy caused complications in her life. And um, it's kind of like, you know, we talked about of when I spoke a few weeks ago that I kind of had that shift where I was reading about the fruits of the Spirit and had always thought, oh, because I'm a Christian or because I believe in God, then I should be these things versus the opposite of that. It's like being in the Spirit and choosing to commune with God, then those things come. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Live by the Spirit is what it says, not just um, trying to be those things. Luther said of her song, she said it not for herself alone, but for all of us to sing it after her. And so if we choose to sing it with her, it places us in intense relationship to the living God, an overflowing source of hope and joy. A God who regards 
the suffering world with utmost mercy and summons us together in the struggle to build a just and human world. Okay, this is where, this is where you get to participate and why I want everyone sitting close. Because I really do believe um, that God is found and can be found all day long, right? In the dailiness of our lives and that we're able to experience joy and other things um, as we commune with the Spirit. And I'm not talking about uh, the, like, culture of positivity or the, like, hashtag blessed. Like that, I'm not talking about that kind of joy. Um, but I guess I wonder, like, how do we remind ourselves that we are loved unconditionally of God? How do we choose to savor a moment, to give from the overflow, to bring joy to others? And I'm constantly... Uh, trying to erase this line between what's considered sacred and secular. I'm really um, interested in when Paul says that, like, Christ is all and in all. And so how can I look in the eyes of, I don't really have people, I would say an enemy, but how do I look in the eyes of someone I disagree with or a family member who prods, you know, wants to push buttons? Or how do I look in their eyes and say, like, this is Christ, Christ is in them? right? In the same way that I look out my window at the bird feeder, I'm like, oh yeah, that is definitely Christ, right? And these birds coming and this mystery of flight and all of that, you know? And so, so this is my question at, is at the end. And, and we can cut this off for the podcast if that makes people feel like they don't want to. But also on the podcast, they can't really hear people <laughs> that are not mic'd. So. But I, I want to ask, like, where do you experience joy? And if that question feels too hard, then the question just can be, how and when will you choose joy, or how and when do you choose joy? Um, Tomorrow or tonight or or in the coming, you know, coming weeks. Um, And I'll be quiet for a little while if anyone wants to answer, but it's fair if you don't want to. So often when I'm falling asleep, I have a practice of thinking about the day and not trying to like think of the things I wish I'd done differently, but thinking about the day in terms of like where did I feel, experience the presence of God, right? It's like the daily exam. It's not, I did not make up this practice. And, and it can be good because I can be reminded of a moment during the day. I was like, oh yeah, that, that was connection. That was beautiful or like whatever it was. So I've been thinking just this week, I'm working on this, and as I've slept at night, trying to think um, kind of like what we did right now. It's like moments of my day that were joyful, right? Instead of focusing on those moments of the day that were not, because we will always have those with us, right? Um, We'll always have those, but I think kind of training our brain to look for moments of joy um, can be a really really good uh, way to spend our time. So that's my, I'm leaving that with you. Think about Mary this week and her, her joy that just like spilled out onto the pages of the Bible, right? And um, think about how joyful she was amidst the heartache and that it is possible for us to, to find that joy. Um, and that's my prayer for you. So I'm going to read this and then we will um, have communion together. Austin's going to lead us. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read this from the poems that I mentioned. Blessed be God for the faithfulness of Mary, for her courage, her boldness, her initiative, for her willingness to journey, to change, and to suffer, for her wholehearted offering of herself to God and God's work of liberation. May we too be bold in believing, generous in self-offering, 
and wholehearted in our participation in God's work of justice and freedom. Amen.